Well, what an appropriate song to lead us uh, into our time in God's Word back in the Gospel of John. That song was uh, very encouraging, very reassuring. Uh, It is well with my soul is really a a statement of my heart is at rest. Um, I'm at peace with the Lord about what is going on in my life. And uh, that is really the the heart and soul of of chapter 14 of John. We've been looking at how Jesus was providing comfort and encouragement and reassurance, right? Uh, Because the hearts of the disciples were troubled. And so he wanted to help it be well with their soul. And so he's told them some things that they needed to know that would... uh, Make it all right. And so we're going to pick up where we left off in John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. And we'll be studying through verse 26 today. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live and you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father And I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Holy Spirit, we approach you this morning, interestingly enough, to ask you to open up our minds and illuminate them to understand this teaching about you. Lord, this is um, a vital truth that we have got to understand, and, and, and not just the truth of it, but the implications of that truth for our life are, are truly life-changing. And so, Lord, we ask for your help, Lord, as we tread into mysterious territory, uh, into places that are beyond our comprehension, as human beings, but Lord, your spirit would help us to to grasp what we can understand that we might live differently as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith is what we call the Trinity. And whether you realize it or not, the word Trinity is not even found in the Bible. Uh, It was a, a term that was coined to describe what the Bible teaches, that God is three in one, Trinity. I think a better term is triunity because it more accurately describes how there is one God 
who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are all fully and equally God, but who serve distinct roles and functions and live and work together in perfect unison within the Godhead. That is a simple definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, where we get that from are verses like Genesis 1.26 that say this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. In other words, there was more than just one person working in creation. In fact, if you study the Scripture, you realize that it was actually the Spirit of God who was given the responsibility to create the world. Uh, some say Isaiah 6.3 is a reference to the Trinity when the angels called out in the temple, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus very clearly stated in Matthew 28, verse 19, in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul concluded his letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, by distinguishing the three members of the Godhead, he said, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And then probably the clearest place where we see the Trinity at work together uh, is in the act of salvation, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Paul gives this um, amazing description of, of, of our salvation and our redemption. And notice how he distinguishes the, the role of the Father, the role of the Son, and the role of the Spirit in our salvation. He begins in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, blesses, heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So he begins by saying that the doctrine of salvation starts with election, and it's the Father who elects us. And then he goes on in verse 7, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And so we see the second part of salvation is redemption, and that was accomplished by the second member of the Trinity, the Son. And then in verse 13, he says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of our salvation, having also received, having also believed, excuse me, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of God. Of his glory. And so we have God's election through the Father, God's uh, redemption through the Son, and God's sealing through the Spirit. And all three members of the Trinity or the Godhead are, deserve glory for the role that they played in our salvation. Now, from the very first verse in the Gospel of John, uh, he has emphasized the equality and the unity of the Godhead, particularly the first two members of the Trinity. He was an eyewitness of the Father and the Son working together in perfect harmony. You remember the very first verse, John 1, 1. In the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John chapter 10, verse 30, he said, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So up to this point, he's talked about the Father and the Son and their relationship with one another, but he's really only hinted that there was a third member of the Godhead involved in his life and his ministry. Um, he mentioned him, well, Jesus mentioned him, I should say, in John chapter 3, verse 5, when Nicodemus came to him, wondering how to be saved, how to be born again. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so this is the first uh, mention of the Spirit here in John's Gospel. He mentions him again in John chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me... As the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John provides this commentary, verse 39, but this, is he, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And now here in, in, in chapter 14, we find really the first direct mention of the Holy Spirit by Jesus uh, and John went on to record the, the several other references that Jesus made uh, during the Upper Room Discourse regarding the, the role of the third member of the Trinity. Look at chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And then notice chapter 16. A more extended, probably the most extended teaching uh, about the Holy Spirit later on in the upper room, uh, verse 5, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, but I tell you the truth, it is, for your, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot hear that, bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. The reason I read those passages to you is because much of our doctrine of the Holy Spirit comes from those passages. That this is one of the most concentrated sections of Scripture uh, that, that make reference to the Holy Spirit. And so what we learn about the Holy Spirit from the Upper Room Discourse is extremely valuable in our understanding of the theology of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you have heard uh, the, the term pneumatology. Uh, that is the, the fancy theological term for the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's called pneuma, pneumoth, pneumatology. Pneuma is the word for spirit in the Greek. Um, and this, this study of the Holy Spirit is extremely important 
because the Holy Spirit plays an integral role in our lives as Christians. Listen, everybody listen, look up. Okay, you ready? This is where you need to wake up, okay? You ready? It is absolutely impossible for you to live the Christian life without the help of the Holy Spirit. And if you try to do it in your own strength and in your own wisdom, all you're going to do is fall flat on your face. And that's why so many people, I think, fail miserably as Christians because they rely on their own wisdom and their own strength. Listen, you are not smart enough, you are not strong enough to live the Christian life by yourself, and neither am I. We desperately need God's help, and the third member of the Godhead has assumed the role of our helper. And in our passage today, we're introduced to our helper. I already read for you uh, verse 16, verse 26, chapter 15, verse 26, chapter 16, verse 7. Four times Jesus calls the Holy Spirit helper. And the Greek word is a very interesting word. It's the word parakletos or paraclete, however you want to say it. Uh, And it basically means one who comes alongside to help and support. That's what it means. Parakletos, helper, one who comes alongside to help and support. And this word, which is only used here uh, as a proper noun in the Gospel of John, uh, it could be translated comforter, encourager, strengthener, advisor, counselor, and intercessor. I think all of those words combine to, to help us understand what does it mean that the Holy Spirit is our helper. The moment that you become a Christian... You are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God indwells you and serves as your invisible helper for the rest of your lives here on earth. How cool is that? You got an invisible helper right now. Not just alongside you, but in you. And it is the the permanent abiding presence of the Holy Spirit that enables us to, to be and do all that God wants us to be and do. You will never be all that God wants you to, to be and do, right, without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. Uh, and, and I think we need to say right up front that the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force that we're talking about, not just some power out there, but it's a person. He's a person who, who basically does everything, not for us, but in us and through us. I just made a short list of, of some of the things that the Bible says the Holy Spirit is responsible for. He, he convicts us. He saves us. He regenerates us. He baptizes us. He indwells us. He seals us. He guarantees our eternal inheritance. He teaches us. He empowers us to witness. He helps us to mortify sin. We just read about that in Romans 8. Uh, He guides us. He assures us that we're saved. He intercedes for us. He gifts us to serve. He sanctifies us. He produces fruit in us. You can't be loving and joyful and peaceful, and patient, and kind, and faithful, and have self-control in and of yourselves. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit produces those things in our lives. And so obviously the Holy Spirit plays this indispensable role in our lives, and that's why it's so critical that we know who He is, and what He does, and how He does it. 
I'm sure that all of you can remember when you learned how to ride a bike. Or if you don't remember way back then, right? You remember maybe teaching your kids how to ride a bike. Remember how that went? Right? You, 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 kind of took, you started by taking the training wheels off, right? You got out the ranch and you were there with your, your kid and you were, you were doing that or your dad was there with you, you taking off those things. And then he got there next to you and, or, or you were there and you, you know, the hand on the back of the seat and one on the handlebars and you're running alongside your kid or your dad was running alongside of you and, and, and they're, they're, they're giving you instruction. Hey, don't look down. Look ahead. Look, look, pick a point out down the street and look at that and it'll help you go straight. And keep pedaling and, 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 and you're encouraging. You can do it keep on going, and, 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 and all of a sudden, they wipe out, right? You're like, oh, you run over there, you pick them up, and, you know, you dust them off, and, and they're crying, and you're, you're drying their tears, and, and you go get a band-aid and put it on their knee, and, and then you calm their fears, and you get them back up on that bike, because if you fall off, you got to get right back up, right, and try it again, and you'll never learn, and so they, you, you help and you encourage them uh, to, to, to try it again, and guess what? Every one of you I would hope, learned how to ride a bike. And all your kids, right, know how to ride a bike. And it seemed like the impossible, right, before you ever did it, but you did it. Why? Because you had somebody who came alongside you, right, and helped you learn how to ride that bike. Can you imagine trying to learn how to ride a bike all by yourself? I mean, that'd be really hard and frustrating, right? How about trying to live the Christian life by yourself. How much more frustrating and impossible would that be without the help of somebody coming alongside you? And guess what? That's why we have the Holy Spirit. And that's why I think the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is, is, is one of the most comforting and encouraging and reassuring doctrines in the Bible. Why? Because you as a Christian are never alone. Whenever you're scared or confused or frustrated or tempted or defeated or feel like no one else cares, there's someone that you can call out to for help who's able to provide you with comfort and with care that you need. And so whether it's standing over a dying loved one in a hospital room or grieving over a wayward child or maybe facing some kind of persecution or unfair treatment at work or at school, or maybe you're enduring some kind of incurable disease or, or, or dealing with some chronic pain, or, or maybe you're just battling with sinful thoughts and desires that, that don't seem to go away, and why won't these go away, and I prayed for them to go away, and guess what? You have the Holy Spirit right beside you the whole time to help you. And in the same way, that the Son of God represented God on earth, the Spirit of God represents God in our lives as believers. God lives in us through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That is a mystery that is beyond human comprehension. Now, having said all that, let me just remind you of the context in which Jesus taught these truths about the Holy Spirit. You remember that Jesus had retreated to the upper room with his disciples the night before he was to be crucified, and it was there that he shared with them the sad, shocking news that he was about to leave them, and they couldn't go with him. 
And so obviously the disciples were distraught over the thought of being separated from their master whom they loved and whom they depended on. They, they were troubled. They were scared. They were confused. And that's why this chapter begins with that simple statement, do not let your heart be what? Troubled. Verse 27, he says it again, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And so in order to quiet their troubled hearts, to calm their fears, to put their minds at ease, Jesus told them all these amazing blessings that would result from him going back to heaven. In fact, you guys, if you get this, you're going to be saying, get out of here, Jesus, because the quicker you leave, the faster these things come. It was to their advantage. He wanted them to understand it was to their advantage for him to leave. And we're going to talk about that, how it's better to have the Holy Spirit in us, right? The internal presence of the Spirit than the physical presence of Jesus Christ as Christians today. It's better. It's to our advantage that Jesus is not here on this earth. Pretty amazing to think about. And so he, he talks about these, these blessings along with these amazing promises um, that he makes to them, they, they were intended to reassure them as well as to reinforce them for what lie ahead because he knew, man, it was going down. The chicken was going to hit the fan and the feathers were going to fly and, and there was a lot that these guys were going to have to deal with in the hours and the weeks and the years to come while they waited for him to come back. And, and again, I just want to remind us that these blessings, these promises apply to us as believers, and they should encourage us, and they should embolden us as we wait for Jesus to come back and get us. And the first thing that we can be looking forward to or encouraged by uh, is that, that the fact that Jesus went away, that secured our place in heaven, because he says in verses 1 through 6, hey, I'm going away to prepare a place for you in heaven, when it's ready, I'll come back to get you. In verses 7 to 14, we looked at this last time, Jesus went on to explain Three more blessings or privileges that, that would come as a result of him leaving. Um, we can perceive the Father. We'll be able to have a, a better understanding of the Father. We'll be able to perform greater works uh, for the Father than even Jesus did. And again, not talking about miracles, but, but about conversions and about reaching the world with the gospel rather than just Jerusalem or Israel. Uh, and then lastly, we get to pray to the Father. And that whatever we ask in his name, in the name of Jesus, right, he'll do that for us, that the Father may be glorified. And now in these verses, uh, verses 15 to 20, 26, uh, I think Jesus shared what, in my opinion, is the best blessing, the greatest blessing, the ultimate privilege that we as believers enjoy as a result of Christ returning to heaven, and that is the promise of a holy helper. I can think of a more reassuring truth or promise than knowing that Jesus provided us with the Holy Spirit to help us understand and obey everything he taught and modeled for us while he was here on earth. Jesus didn't say, it's been fun, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya, have fun trying to live all this out, right? You're on your own now, good luck. No, he said, listen, essentially what he's saying is, I'm not really going away after all. I'm not, I'm not really leaving because God is going to send somebody 
just like me to take my place in your life. God's physical presence through his son would simply be replaced by God's internal presence through his spirit. And we're going to see how Jesus being here on the earth and the Holy Spirit being in our hearts is the same thing. And not just the same thing, but even better. So let's look here at this passage at, at some of the roles of our holy helper that the rest of the world knows nothing of. If you're a Christian today, right, you're here, you're a believer, there's some things that are going on in your life, in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, right, that the world knows nothing of because of the Holy Spirit being in you. And we're going to talk about what those things are that are going on that the Spirit is doing in your life. And as we go through this list, if you don't see these things going on in your life, if you say, well, I've never experienced that. I don't feel like that's going on. I've never, that's not happening in my life. This is not how my life looks. Well, it's probably because you don't have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, that means you're not a believer. You're not a Christian, right? And so this is a good day to evaluate um, where you're at with the Lord. And do you see evidences of the Spirit of God working in your life? Like what? Number one, the Spirit of God reveals and reminds us of the words of Christ. The, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, reveals and reminds us of the words of Christ. And uh, I'm going to chop up this passage a little bit uh, and not just kind of go from the first verse to the last. I'm going to take it in kind of chunks um, because these, there are some themes here uh, that are kind of spread out throughout these verses. And so I'm going to pull some verses together. Hopefully it'll make sense as we go through. But notice verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That word another is the word in the Greek for another of the same kind. And I think this is very important because Jesus could have used another word that meant uh, I'm sending another of a different kind. But this is the word for another of the same kind. In other words, what he was trying to say here, uh, or, or was, he wasn't trying to say, he said it, right? Jesus didn't try to do anything, okay? He, he said it, that the Holy Spirit is the same as Jesus Christ. He, he is just like him, so much so that the Spirit is often referred to as the Spirit of Christ or the spirit of Jesus. We, we read a passage, uh, we read Romans 8, where, where the Holy Spirit was, was referred to as the spirit of Jesus or the spirit of Christ, and that's, that happens a number of times throughout the New Testament letters where, where the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, and the spirit of Jesus are used interchangeably. We know that the Father and the Son are one, right? We, we've, we've gotten past that. We all good with that? The Father and the Son are one. Guess what? The Son and the Spirit are one. And if the Father and the Son are one and the Son and the Spirit are one, that also means that the Spirit and the Father are one. They're all the same. There's the Trinity or the triunity, right? Uh, three and one Godhead. However, what sets the Spirit apart from the Son is that the Son was visible whereas the Spirit is invisible. And furthermore, unlike the Son who came and went, the Spirit came to stay forever. I love that here at the end. He says, 
he will give you another helper that he may be with you, what? Forever. Do you have that word underlined in your Bible? This would be a good time to underline that word forever. He will be with you forever. This is, this is, this is new revelation here uh, in the sense for the disciples, in the sense that in the Old Testament, we know that the Holy Spirit was alive and well. Uh, he was actively working, um, uh, you know, obviously for the purpose of regeneration. No one has ever gotten saved, right, in, in all of history without the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. But generally speaking... Uh, In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's ministry was to come on various individuals at various times for various tasks. And after he was done with them, he would leave them and move on to someone else. We we know this from the example of Saul and David. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. It says this, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul... And an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. He's like, whoa, man, that's like my greatest fear, that the spirit of the Lord would depart from me. Well, guess what? If you're a Christian, that will never, ever happen. There's, there was something different with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. There were a lot of similarities, but there was also something different. Um, and, and that's why we never have to pray Uh, what David prayed in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Remember that? We don't ever have to pray that. We never never have to worry about God taking away the Holy Spirit from us. That was, David was simply saying, hey, listen, I watched it go down with Saul. He disobeyed. He dishonored you. You took his spirit off, took your spirit off of him and put it on me. And now I'm concerned because of my disobedience and my sin, you're going to take it off me and put it on someone else. Please don't take your spirit from me. Totally different context. Now, we may grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit or hinder the Spirit's work in our lives, but He will never abandon us or forsake us. Amen? He will be with us forever. Notice He he refers to Him in verse 17 as the Spirit of truth. He, He calls Him that as well in chapter 15, verse 26. He's the Spirit of truth. Chapter 16, verse 13, the Spirit of truth. What's the point? Um, one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is to inspire, communicate, preserve, right, and teach the truth. And so we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who originally inspired the truth, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. Uh, Peter talks about how that actually went down, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation or inspiration, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit, excuse me, spoke from God. So we know that the Holy Spirit was responsible for the inspiration of Scripture, but He also continually illumines our minds to the truth of Scripture, so we can apprehend the Scriptures, we can apply the Scriptures to our lives. That's why you hear me often pray before we, we dive into a text, and, and we ask the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds, right, to give us understanding. Who better to help us understand this book than the one who wrote it, right? It's the Holy Spirit. He wrote it. He inspired it. So let's go to Him and say, hey, would you help us understand what you meant by what you said through John or through Paul or through whatever? And so he, he, he inspires the Scriptures, he illuminates the Scriptures, and notice it says, 
and the world cannot receive that. He's the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. See, the unbelievers know nothing of the spirit of God other than the convicting work, right, that he may be doing in their lives. They don't know why they feel convicted about their sin. They just feel guilty about their sin. Well, that's the spirit of God condemning them, right, and, and granting them conviction, and possibly drawing them, right, to, to the knowledge of the truth. But uh, uh, other than that, unbelievers really, they, they can't see the Spirit, they can't comprehend the Spirit, they can't even comprehend the Word of God, apart from the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that, that the, the natural man, the man without the Spirit of God in them, cannot understand the things of God. It's impossible. Why? Because you need the Spirit of God in you to understand the Word of God. You can't understand the Word of God apart from the Spirit of God. And so if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, right, how can you understand the Word of God? The analogy I've heard used that I like is that, that we're all wired with, a, with an AM radio, right? And God's broadcasting on FM, and so we can go up and down that dial all day long trying to pick up, you know, some God's wave. We're on, we're on the same wavelength. And so God, when we get saved, He kind of installs a, an FM function, right, where we can start picking up his word and, and, and his mind and his heart. But unbelievers can't do that. Notice what he says in verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Now, Jesus could only teach so much during his limited amount of time that he was with disciples. He only had like three years or so. And so there's only so much he could teach. Uh, Not to mention the fact that a lot of what he was teaching them, they didn't even get. So how could he teach them even some deeper things, right, if they couldn't get the more basic things? But what he's saying here is, hey, listen, the Holy Spirit that the Father will send, he will continue to teach you truth, In other words, this is not the end of your instruction. He's going to continue to teach you truth just like I did. He's also going to remind you of what I taught you and and also help you understand the things that I said that you don't really get right now. And I think it's interesting when you move into the book of Acts, after Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came at Pentecost, it's like the light switch was turned on. I mean, you just listen to Peter preach. So he preached some things that were just, that were way beyond his pay grade okay, way beyond his understanding, right, that he was struggling with just a few days earlier, a few weeks earlier, right, and, and then all of a sudden he's preaching all these truths that, 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 why, the Spirit of God revealed these things to him, and they all made sense, they all kind of came together, it all clicked. And we know that eventually the Spirit of God directed these apostles to actually write this stuff down, right, word for word, And he's preserved them for us here in the pages of Scripture. And we have the New Testament as a result of the Holy Spirit's teaching ministry and reminding ministry. So the Holy Spirit not only helps us understand the teaching of God's Word, but he also reminds us of what we've already been taught. And so when you're 
faced with a trial and you're like, you're, your mind is just overwhelmed with fear and anxiety and, and, and the Spirit of God is the one who reminds you of those verses, those passages that encourage your heart. Or you're being, you're, here you see in temptation coming, man, sore drawn, right? And he's coming after you and you're going to be assaulted by sinful desires and sinful thoughts. And, 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 and what, what do you do? It's the sword of the Spirit, right? The sword of the Spirit, he, he reminds you of things. He reminds you of things that will help you in your battle against temptation and sin. So he reveals the truth and he, re- and he reminds you of the truth of Christ. Secondly, he, the Spirit of God identifies and indwells the children of God. He, he identifies and indwells the children of Christ. Notice ver- the second part of verse 17. It says, the Spirit of God, whom the, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Again, before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was present and active in people's lives, saving them, sanctifying them, empowering them for service. But Jesus promised here that after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would not simply abide with His people, but in His people. A little extra something-something going on here, okay? The God of the universe would make his abode with them. He would take up permanent residence in their hearts. Wow. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But the point is this, that the Holy Spirit is always with us. Wherever we go, you don't ever have to pray that the Holy Spirit would show up at a certain point in your life or at a certain meeting or at a location or on some occasion, right? Listen, if you are there, the Spirit is there. We don't have to ask the Spirit of God to come and fall on us here uh, as a ch- uh, on this church service. He's already here. He's like, what are you guys talking about? I'm already here. Why are you asking me to come? I'm here. I'm in all of you, right? Notice verse 18. I like this. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I mean, wasn't that the bottom line? That these disciples were feeling they, like they were about to get orphaned by Jesus? That their spiritual daddy was, was about to leave them? He says, hey, listen, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. And commentators give different reasons why um, that I will come to you means the resurrection some think it's Pentecost, some think it's the second coming, right? That he came to them in several ways. He came to them, came back to life, right? In his resurrection, he came to them in the form of the Spirit. Um, at Pentecost, he would come again. He will come again, right? Well, I think it maybe is all-inclusive when he says, I will come to you. Notice verse 19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also, I think that's clearly a reference to the resurrection, right? I think it's interesting that there's no record of any unbelievers uh, seeing Jesus after he resurrected from the dead. In other words, the only people that saw Jesus in his resurrected body were faithful followers, which gave them the confidence that they would be resurrected someday too. Notice verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. You say, what's that day? In that day, what day? You will know that I am in my Father. I would say that most likely refers to the day of Pentecost when the Spirit's descent confirmed that Jesus had ascended back to the Father. When when the Spirit of God came, boom, at Pentecost, 
here, here are the disciples. They're waiting in the upper room saying, okay, let's see, let's see what happens here. Jesus left us. He said he was going to send the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're trusting him, right, that he's on his way back to heaven, and he's going to send that. When he gets there, he's going to ask the Father. The Father's going to send the Spirit, right, to take his place. And then all of a sudden, boom, it happens. And you're like, yep, Jesus is good on his word. He's back in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Everything he said is true. Here's the Holy Spirit just as he promised. And so it really was a confirmation for them of who he said he was. And notice this last phrase. It says, you will know that I'm in my Father and you in me and I in you. Lots of people in one another here going. He's like, what's going on there? I don't know. Um, <laughs> there, there's, in the same way that there was a vital link between the Son and the Father, which we've been seeing, right, in the Gospel of John, so there is this marvelous union between the Son and us. And because of the union that the Son had with the Father, we have a union with the Father. It's like, it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? And, and you may not know this person over here, but you know someone who knows that person, and so in essence, you know that person, right? You have a relationship with that person. And, and again, when it says here that I will be in you and I in you, I mean, that is a humongous statement uh, that we don't have time to, to tackle, but other than just to say that that the fact that Christ dwells in the life of every believer through the Holy Spirit. What, what is, it's, just, it's everywhere in the New Testament that we are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, that Christ is in us. I love how Paul said it in Colossians. He, he said, this is the mystery to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is... Uh, what, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, right? And so Jesus reassured his distressed disciples that his departure would not end their relationship with him, but in fact, it would improve on it. It would build on it. It would take their relationship to the next level. And so ironically, Jesus leaving would allow his disciples to know him even better, to see him more clearly than when he was with them physically. And listen, this is where it's good for us. You ready for this? Through the Holy Spirit in us, we can actually know Christ better today than the disciples knew him when he was on earth. That's pretty crazy to think about, that we can know Jesus better today through the Spirit in us, right, than the disciples could when he was here on earth. And so he identifies and indwells the children of Christ. And then finally, the Holy Spirit stimulates and sustains loving obedience to Christ. He stimulates and sustains loving obedience to Christ. Now you'll notice I jumped right over that first verse, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I, I'm tempted just to do a whole sermon on that. Because this really is the hallmark of the Christian life. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And over and over and over and over again, Jesus made this point that don't just call yourself a Christian. Don't tell people you love Jesus unless you obey Jesus. The ultimate expression of our devotion to Christ is that we obey Christ. The best way to show Jesus that we love him is to obey him. 
someone has put it this way, a, a person does not show that the Holy Spirit lives in him by bizarre behavior or belief, but by knowing and obeying the commands of the Lord Jesus. Like, how do you know somebody's a Christian? Because they have all these wild experiences, and Jesus came and showed up, you know, while they were shaving one morning, or, you know, and they talked to him, and, you know, I have all these crazy, wild experiences, I spoke in the tongues, and I did all this stuff. Surely Jesus is, listen, that is not the, the, the best way, right, to prove that Jesus is in you. It's, it's by obeying the commands of Jesus. It's a life of obedience. And then he went on, this commentator so, said so well how desperately we need balance in the church. He said making too much of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit leads to mysticism. Making too little of the Holy Spirit leads to legalism. What is Lakeside Bible Church most susceptible to? Mysticism or legalism? Legalism, Exactly. Because we are trying to avoid the kind of crazy mysticism that we see out there in the charismatic movement, right? And so if we're not careful, we'll err too much on, okay, we got to downplay the Holy Spirit. We don't want to talk about the Holy Spirit. We don't want to make too much of the Holy Spirit. Or we'll become maybe, some of you will think we're charismatic or spirit-filled or whatever, right? No. So, so what are we going to do? Let's just downplay the Holy Spirit and then we become legalists who are trying to live the Christian life in our own strength. And we don't want to be that. Got to have a balance. Notice he picks up on this theme in verse 21 again. He says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Again, Jesus emphasizing that the way you prove your love for Christ is by obeying his commands. John uh, kind of went off on this concept in his first epistle 1 John chapter 1, or excuse me, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. How do you know you're a Christian? Do you obey the Bible? Do you live according to the principles of God's word? The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. He went on in chapter 5. By this we know that we love the children of God, verse 2, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I've said this before. What that means is, you know, it's not a pain in the neck for you to obey the Bible. You're like, oh, man, why do I have to obey all this stuff? This is so stupid, you know? Well, if that's your attitude towards the commands of Scripture, then you don't love the Lord, and you're not a Christian. But if you are a Christian, it's a joy, Right? To obey, though, it's not a burden. Now, it doesn't mean it's easy to obey, but at least there's a desire to obey, right? You may battle and struggle obeying, but there's a desire to want to honor the Lord and to please the Lord and to obey the Lord. And Jesus modeled this principle of love and obedience. Notice verse 31. We're back in John 14, verse 31. He says, So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Listen, I want the world to know that I, as the Son, love the Father. And so the way that I can show the world that I love the Father is I just obey. I do whatever He tells me to do. I do exactly as the Father commanded Look at chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. In other words, Jesus wasn't telling us to do anything He wasn't doing Himself. 
He was proven his love for the Father by obeying the Father. We prove our love for, for Christ by obeying the commands of Christ. Notice what happens here. He says, when, when you do this, when you show your love for Christ by keeping his commandments, it says, you'll be loved by the Father and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. In other words, I'll reveal myself to you. Listen, when we disobey, we, we hinder God's work in our lives. Um, we can't go any deeper. God's not going to give us any greater depth in our relationship with him. Right? Right? It kinda, he can't make himself known to us. Right when we're disobeying and doing our own thing, and he's like, "Fine, I'm not, I'm not going to reveal myself to you any more than I already have. Right? I'm not going to disclose myself to you." So ask yourself: Are there any patterns of disobedience in your life right now that God's kind of just saying, "You know what? We're not going any further in our relationship until you deal with these issues." Right? I, I can't reveal myself any more to you. Right? We can't get any closer. Right? As long as you're doing what you're doing. Then look at verse twenty-two. Judas, in parentheses, not Iscariot, um, I'm sure Judas um, appreciated John <laughs> uh, clarifying, hey, this is not Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, the traitor, right? There was apparently two disciples named Judas. Um, uh, other lists call this guy Matthias or Matthias, um, but he, he couldn't understand how Jesus could appear to them without also being seen by the rest of the world. Notice he says, uh, Jesus, uh, Lord, what, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? I don't get that. Again, what was he assuming? He, he was assuming that Jesus was talking about coming in his glory as a conquering king to set up his kingdom. I mean, the disciples still, when Jesus was about to be ascended, right, to ascend back to heaven, they were still on this in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when they came together and they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? He thought he was gathering them together, you know, for the big show. And, and so that's kind of what was going on here, that, that what, what Judas here and, and the other disciples didn't realize was that Jesus wasn't planning to set up a, an earthly kingdom, a, a physical kingdom in Jerusalem, but a spiritual kingdom in the heart's of those who would believe. And that, that, that spiritual kingdom would be maintained by faith, not by, by sight. Notice verse 23, how he answers. He said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not, uh, does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Again, he's going, continuing to expand this idea of the, the, the relationship between love and obedience. The Father loves those who truly love his Son. The Father loves those who truly love his Son. And those who obey the words of Christ are ultimately obeying the words of the Father. And when we obey the commands of Christ, it makes the Father love us and want to make his abode with us. That word abode is the same word that was used in verse 2. In my Father's house are many abodes or dwelling places or rooms. And so what Jesus is asserting here is nothing less 
than our poor, needy little heart will become the residence of the triune God. As all three persons of the Godhead make a home in us and with us. Can you figure that out? (laughs) Can you comprehend that? That is mind-blowing. But basically what's going on here is is that while Jesus is, is, is preparing a dwelling place for us in his Father's house in heaven, in the meantime, both the Father and the Son have come to dwell in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. How cool is that? He's like, hey, I'm going away to prepare a place for you in heaven, in my Father's house, but in the meantime, we're all going to come back and we're going to dwell with you while you're waiting to go to heaven. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in your heart forever. Again, you think, well, I'm not doing so hot on the obeying part the loving part, well, maybe it's because one of two reasons. Either you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you're not a Christian, that's why you can't obey, consistently obey, or maybe it's because you're trying to live the Christian, Christian life in your own strength. And you need to learn to rely on the Holy Spirit and, and access this power, right, the personal power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And guess what? The Holy Spirit is omnipotent. He's God, right? That means all, he's all-powerful. So you're telling me you've got an omnipotent, all-powerful spirit, right? The spirit of God in you, and you can't overcome sin? I mean, that's convicting. I'm preaching to myself, okay? We have everything we need for life and godliness through our relationship with Christ. What an amazing mystery. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for... Uh, this mystery that really is beyond us. And uh, Lord, I know there's been a lot to take in this morning. It's been heavy, um, lots of deep truth, but I just pray that you'd help us to see the practical implications for our lives. Lord, that we would be able to go out of here differently today and that we would see um, just the changes that you would, would expect and would desire in our lives as a result of understanding better um, the Holy Spirit and his role in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.